Tonight we're continuing our series on worship, and we've taken a couple of week, weeks off uh, from the series. Last week we uh, heard a missions report from Archie Alderson. Wasn't that a great report of his uh, trip to Japan? And then uh, before that, the week before that, we had our uh, quarterly elder prayer and, and worship uh, night. But tonight we're back in uh, to our series on worship. And if you'll recall, when we started this series, I don't know, several months ago, that, that we looked at the definition of worship and w- what it is and what it was all about. And we've been tracking that, that theme of worship all throughout the Bible. From, we're going from Genesis uh, to Revelation is, is the plan. And what we, what we saw early on was that worship, the, the truest meaning of worship, isn't only songs that we sing, isn't only coming to a place at a certain time, but really worship is, is obedience to the Lord. Remember Revelation, not Revelation, Romans 12, 1, worship the Lord with your body, with your whole self, that that is our spiritual worship, obedience to the Lord, and, and we've been tracking this theme of, of worship, and the last time that we were in uh, the, the series, we looked at uh, worship that was lost, that, that God's people had forsaken God, and they had gone off into idolatry, and we looked at King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, and that spirit of idolatry of worshiping false gods, of worshiping idols, and the, the horrific things that, that came about and came out of worshiping false gods and worshiping idols. And when we come to tonight, the text tonight, the story tonight, it's a story about reformation. It's a story about recovery. It's a story about going back to God after a nation has fallen away from God. And I think that we could look at our nation, a nation that we are a part of, and, you know, you ask why, we're talk, why I would talk about the United States and not China. Well, because I'm not in China. I live in the United States. If I was in China, I'd be talking about China, but we're citizens of this uh, country, and a, a country that at its very inception, was founded uh, in covenant with God. If you look at the, the, the very first founding documents of this nation, which was the Mayflower Compact, they did it in, for, they, they founded that government, they established that government. You go, go and read it. This is kind of the time of year, you know, Thanksgiving, where we reflect on those things. Go read the text of the Mayflower Compact. It says for, explicitly, for the glory of Jesus Christ, we covenant together as a society and as a people to bring glory to God, to uphold righteousness and justice. So from the very inception, uh, our nation, the, the very roots of our nation were explicitly Christian. Uh, you go back to the, the vast majority of the people that came here early on were pilgrims seeking religious freedom. The, the Puritans who were escaping persecution came here to establish 
distinctly Christian uh, communities. Uh, many of the, the colonies were founded by churches and their pastors who, who left, who, who came as entire congregations. The colonies were, were distinctly Christian uh, uh, Christian institutions and uh, our, our history, our heritage as a nation is a Christian nation. And I know that there are people today who would want to rewrite history. I, I know that might seem shocking to you, but we we'll try to rewrite history and say that what I'm saying is not true, but it, it is true. It's, it's actually irrefutably true. Um, in fact, in the late 19th century, there was a Supreme Court decision. The, the name of the, the case was humorously called, I think, the Holy Trinity versus the United States of America. Go look up this court case in which the Supreme Court declared the United States to be, and I quote, a Christian nation. Like that, that's just over 100 years ago. And so the, the world we live in would want us to forget our history, to forget our heritage, to forget that we have made a covenant with God. The, the, our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, begins with the fact that we are endowed by our Creator, and, and, and no, you, when, when you understand the, the culture that was at work, the distinctly Christian culture of the day at work in which those documents sprang out of, there's only one creator that they could be talking about. They're talking about Jesus Christ, the Lord, that we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights and what an incredible idea that our rights don't come from the king, that our rights don't come from the state, but that our rights come from God himself. What a found, found, fantastic idea. If you ask most people today, where, are, where do your rights come from? Most of them would probably think they come from the government. But they don't come from the government, they come from God. His word teaches us that clearly. So uh, again, the Constitution ratified, quote, in the year of our Lord, acknowledging the Lord Jesus at the very founding of our nation. So when you look at a nation that historically was a Christian nation, a nation that historically served God uh, and, and its institutions uh, acknowledged God, and in fact, the the the, the the Ten Commandments hung in our courtrooms all across the land that the Ten Commandments are actually etched in stone over the Supreme Court. Good luck tearing that down. Good luck t taking that down. The, the, these things are, this is our, our history. This is where we come from. And there are those who are trying and have tried and, and have taken our culture in a very uh, unchristian direction. And... Unfortunately, um, the church has gone along for the ride and, and has been content to say, well, you know, what happens in the public that, that, that you know, we have to have the, maintain the separation of, of church and state and, and it's not right for us to impose our beliefs upon uh, or to enshrine our beliefs in, in the public sphere. It has to be neutral 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, when you pull the light out, what are you going to have flood in? It's going to be darkness. And so as, as, as the church has been deceived into believing that you could somehow maintain a social order without the foundation of the truth of the word of God, without it disintegrating into lawlessness, to anarchy, to totalitarianism, to uh, total uh, mob rule, it, it's, a, it's a fool's errand. There is no other foundation than Jesus Christ. And, and to try to maintain the blessings of the Lord without acknowledging his lordship is a fool's errand. And so when, when we come now to this passage, I, I don't want you to think that I think that America is Israel. I don't believe that. God had a covenant people, the covenant people of Israel. He's doing something unique here as we study here. Second uh, Kings is where we're going to be, Second Kings chapter 21. God did something unique through the nation of Israel. Primarily, he brought his Messiah to the world. But in doing so, he declared that his Messiah wasn't only the king of Israel, but that he was the king of kings and lord of lords. That he was the king of the nations. That Jesus isn't just the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the, the, the Messiah of all people. And that the nations now are being grafted into the covenant of God. And so I'm not saying that the United States is the new Israel and that the United States is Israel. Don't, don't misunderstand that I'm saying that at all. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that I believe any nation and any people and any place can covenant with God. And in doing so, enjoy the blessings of faithfulness, but also then endure the judgment of unfaithfulness, the chastening of the Lord, if you will. And so as we look at, the, as we look at this story here in, in 2 Kings, what we see is that it's a dark season, that, that there has been idolatry, that there has been false worship, that God's temple has been polluted that they've brought idols into the temple and that even they have practiced the, the most abominable of all sins, child sacrifice to these false gods. That the, the kings that had been leading the nation were leading the nation into this idolatry, into this debauchery. And there was a succession of these kings, and it was just so dark. Can you imagine living in a nation that openly practiced human child sacrifice? What that does to the psyche of a nation, to the, to the mind of the people. But here we are in Second uh, Kings. In chapter 21, it talks about a king who began to reign and that he was only able to reign for a short time, a period of two years. He was so evil and so wicked. Verse 22, it says he abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, did not walk in the way of the Lord. Verse 23 of chapter 21, and the servants of Ammon, this is the name of the king, conspired against him and put the king to death in his house. 
He was so evil and wicked that his own servants killed him. Verse 24 says, The people of the land struck down all of those who had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his place. So Josiah begins to reign. In verse 1 of chapter 22, it tells us that he was eight years old when he began to reign. Anybody eight years old tonight? Any eight-year-olds eight year in the house? Where were can you imagine being king? You know, goodness gracious, right? I mean, so, he, so this young man is, is thrust into leadership at a very young age when he was eight years old. and begins to reign, and verse 2 says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the way of David, his father. You know, David was a man after God's own heart, and and the, the faithful kings were, were said to walk in the ways of David, to pursue God. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And then in verse 3 it says, In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king uh, sent some people to go and to restore the temple, to, to rebuild the temple because it lay in ruins. The, the temple had fallen into total uh, 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 ruin as it had been neglected. And so he sends the, these, this demolition crew, this, this uh, uh, re restorative crew, this renovation crew into the temple to, to restore it, to beautify it, to, to fix it up. And in verse 8, as they're working in the temple, it says, Hilkiah, the high priest, said to uh, Shaphan, the secretary, he tells them as they're working on this project, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house. They delivered it in the hand of the workmen for the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan told the secretary of the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now, now the book he's talking about here is the, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch closes with the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, which Moses gave to the children of Israel as they were heading into the promised land for the first time. He retold that next generation that came up. He retold them the law. And Deuteronomy ends with a pronouncement of blessing if you will keep the law of God and judgments if you will not keep the law of God. And so the book of the law had been lost. It had been hidden. It had been neglected. Josiah had never heard this. And in verse 11, it says, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and all of the host around them to go and to inquire of the Lord, to go and to seek out a prophet, to say, well, what is it? Are these judgments about to come upon us? Verse 13, he says, Go inquire of the Lord for me. And for the people and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found, 
For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written in them. And so he sends word and, and they go and they meet with the prophet and the prophet sends word back that yes, in fact, these judgments are going to come upon this nation because that they have forsaken me, they have forsaken my law, they have broken my covenant, they have turned away from me, they have worshiped these idols, they have sacrificed their children. Yes, I'm a God of justice and I'm going to bring these judgments upon the land. However, he says in verse 19, because your heart was penitent, that's humbled, and that you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to the grave in peace and your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. Basically, what happens is because Josiah is so broken, because Josiah is so repentant, that the Lord delays the judgment that he's about to bring upon the land because of the repentance of Josiah. The story continues into chapter 23, where Josiah calls together an assembly, assembles the nation together. And together they read the words of the law in the, in the hearing of everyone in Jerusalem, bringing the people under conviction and calling them back to live in faithfulness to the Lord. They do so. And then Josiah begins to clean house. He goes throughout the whole nation, tearing down every altar, tearing down every idol, removing every false prophet, removing every false priest, he even goes so far as offering, uh, or not offering, but burning the bones of these false priests on these false idols, uh, these false altars, and then tearing them down. He reinstitutes, reinstitutes the Passover. Verse 22 of, of chapter 23 says that no such Passover had ever been kept since the days of the judges who were in Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of of Judah, that the Passover that they kept to the Lord what was the greatest one that had ever been kept that year that he brought about these reformations. He begins to purify their worship, and he, he goes on to uh, lead the people into faithfulness to the Lord all the days of his life. And so that's a little bit of, of the backstory. And, and so from this, I want to give you tonight eight steps of reformation, eight steps that you can reform, that we can reform, eight steps that anybody can use to reform any institution where you have authority. Wherever you have authority, if, if this institution needs reformation, you need to follow these eight steps. It might be personal reformation that you need in your own life. Maybe you're just now coming into a walk with the Lord or, or maybe coming back to the Lord, you're going to need to put these eight steps into practice in your life. Maybe you're a family who, who you want to see your family serving the Lord. You, you need to, to, to reform your family according to these eight steps. Maybe you have a business that needs reformation. 
You can use these eight steps in a business. You can use these eight steps even in the government. Amen. And so step number one we see is that they found the book. They found the book. There is no reformation without the book. They found the book. They found the word of God. Reformation, true reformation, true revival, true coming back to God always starts with the book. Always. If, if there's some sort of movement that is promising some sort of renewal or some sort of reformation or some sort of progress and it's not rooted in the word of God, it's idolatrous. It's false. It's false hope. It's false worship. It's leading people astray. Step number one of true reformation is always finding the book. He says, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. This was the great cry of the reformers. Pastor Mark talked a few weeks ago about the Protestant Reformation and the heritage of that. The, the great cry of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura, scripture alone. Scripture alone is the infallible authority and the final authority on all matters of life and worship. The, uh, the essence of the Reformation of the the 16th century, the reformation of Josiah's day, if we want to see a reformation in our day, it has to be finding the book. It has to be sola scriptura. It has to be what does the word of God say? It has to be. Jesus said that his words are a sure and solid foundation and that everyone who hears his words and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house upon a rock. But every other's foundation is what? It is shifting sand beneath our feet. If it's not what does the word say, it's what does man say and man's philosophies say. It has to be the word of God. This is why we do not place our hope in political parties. Or in politicians. We do not place our hope in political movements. We place our hope in the word of God and the spirit of God convicting hearts and minds. That's where reformation comes from. I think way too many people had put their hope this last week that they were going to be riding in on a red wave. Even Christians, our hope is not in a political party. Our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is in the Lord. There is no reformation without sola scriptura, without finding the book. The Lord is our only hope. And we have had the book. We, we've had the word of God. We've had the word of God in our nation. Again, as I, as I said, our, our founding documents but over time, God's people, the church, we've lost our confidence in the word. We, we've allowed, uh, uh, we've allowed the, the great phrase of the serpent in the Garden of Eden that he deceived Eve with. We, we've, we've lived under that mantra of, hath God said? 
Does, did God really say, does his word really teach this? Is his word really true? Is his word really sure? And we've allowed a, a postmodern uh, idea to come into our, our thinking, which is that we can never be certain about anything, that we can never know anything completely and anything for certain. And too many of our young people have gone off to college and, and not even in college, but even in uh, public schools been trained in this postmodern thinking that you can never be certain about anything. To which I ask, are you certain about that? Are you, are you sure about that? It's a self-refuting argument. It, it's so absurd. But we can be sure about the self-attesting, authoritative word of God. But the church has lost its confidence in the word because of secularism, the rise of secularism, the, the, the rise of humanism, the, the challenges of Darwinism and atheism and evolution. And the, we, we must practice religious pluralism. All of these isms, the church has just sort of retreated, 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 thinking that Somehow things would continue to go well, but what do we see that uh, we live in a culture that is so rampantly disintegrating before our very eyes to the point where we can't even confidently say what a man is, what a woman is. That's how far we've fallen. That's how lost we are. That's how confused we are because we've gone away from the sure foundation of the word of God. And so to bring about reformation in any sphere, in any area, from personal to familiar to, to, to national, it has to come with the devotion to the word of God, to the words of the book. That's number one. Number two, we see in verse 11, is that when he hears the words of the book, he, he has this personal repentance. He, he tears his clothes. He, he says, woe is me. He falls on his face and he weeps before the Lord. Notice here I'm saying personal repentance, not necessarily private repentance. Because his, his repentance, though it was personal, though he, he personally repented, he w didn't do it privately. It was a very public repentance. But this repentance comes from being broken in a very deep way over the sin of his people and the sin of his nation. Though Josiah uh, was a good king, though he was leading God's people in a righteous way, he, he even himself is so convicted by the word of God that he doesn't look and say, well, I'm better than the guys that came before me. We're doing all right in my day. No, he, 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 he identifies himself with the sin of his nation. And he doesn't say, well, it's not my sin, it was their sin. But he recognizes that his nation has broken their covenant with God and that they have now positioned themselves not to receive God's blessing, but to receive his judgment. No doubt he is responding to Deuteronomy chapter 28 that talks about the blessings of faithfulness and the judgment of unfaithfulness. 
In explicit terms, I encourage you, go read Deuteronomy chapter 28. You, you might not be familiar with that passage, but you should be. Because did you know that it used to be, I'm not sure when it stopped, it stopped a few years ago. But it used to be that, uh, you know, when our presidents are sworn in, they place their hand upon a Bible. Did you know that? Why do they do that? Well, they're, they're, they're saying that they're going to uphold justice. That's what they're saying. And that this is the standard of justice. But did you know that for the majority, it only stopped recently, I'm not really sure when they stopped doing it. They didn't used to do it on a closed Bible, but they used to place their hand on an open Bible. And do you know the passage that they were open to? Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and the curses of faithfulness or unfaithfulness to covenant with God. Did you know that? That almost every single president up until modern times has placed their hand on Deuteronomy 28, declaring to uphold justice according to the word of God. No doubt this is the passage that is rending Josiah's heart as he recognizes that his people are covenant breakers. And, and I, just, I just wonder if, if God's people are so, in our day, callous to the fact that over the last 50 years, we've murdered 60 million babies in their mother's womb. How callous we've come to the the fact that the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are paraded openly in our streets. How calloused are we to the fact that our, our children in, in, in the public schools are being indoctrinated in this demonic philosophy of atheism and Darwinism and even socialism. Where, where is those who will, who will read the word of God and, and like Josiah, tear their clothes and, and rend their hearts and, and weep before the Lord and, and call out to God for forgiveness, to call out to God in repentance? Josiah is not responsible for the child's sacrifice. Josiah is not responsible for the sins of the past. Josiah has been faithful unto God but he recognizes that he is a part of a people that have been unfaithful to God. And he begins to cry and he begins to weep over the sins of his people. We're so individualistic that we say, well, it wasn't me, therefore I'm good. But do you see that we are part of a people who is guilty before God? Do you see that? That we, even at times, have been complicit. That I, even at times, have been complicit in my silence on these matters. That when God's people are silent, they are complicit in the sin that surrounds us. And we must repent. We must allow our hearts to be broken by the word of God. We, we must, again, find the book and let it stir in us conviction 
that would move us like Josiah, move us to tears and, and move us to our knees before God and begin to cry out to God for mercy, cry out to God for revival, cry out to God that he would send a move of his spirit in our land, but that we would, we would make a dedication to not be silent as our world pursues death and destruction. Number three, we see this in verse 13, he sought the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. He, he sent, and sent a delegation to a prophetess who, who gave them a, 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 the word of the Lord. Now we, of course, we know that Jesus is our, our great prophet, priest, and king, that he is our one mediator between God and man. We don't need to go and consult with others. We can go straight to him. Amen. And again, this should lead us to prayer. This should lead us to seeking the face of God. I, I believe that probably more than any other time in, in our nation's history, the church is probably praying the least it ever has. I, I, you, you could probably draw a straight line between the... the the prayerlessness of the church and the disintegration of our, our culture. The, the, times that we ought to be, the time in which now we ought to be seeking the Lord more than ever is when we find ourselves praying the least. He inquired of the Lord. He, he sought the Lord. He got on his face before God. You know, Jesus said, my house will be called a house of, of prayer. Are we a praying people? Are we a praying people? If, if, if we are not a praying people, it, it, it means a lot of things. and it, The implications are very large, and it means that we're mostly reliant and dependent upon ourselves and not upon God. That, that prayer and seeking the Lord and asking Him to move and petitioning Him shows our reliance upon Him, our dependence upon Him. We're too self-dependent, reliant upon self. We need to be more reliant upon God. Number four, we see in chapter 23... That he called an assembly. He called everybody together. He got everyone together. Again, if you're, if you're wanting to do reformation in an area where you have authority, you, you got you to go through these steps and, and get everybody together and say, this is what has happened. And when he got everybody together, he called the whole city of Jerusalem together. The priests, the people, it says both small and great. And in verse 2 it says, And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. He, he read the word of God. He proclaimed the word of God to these people that had been unfaithful, to these people who had gone astray, who these people had, had wandered off into sin. He declared the word of the Lord. This is what we need in our nation. We need people who will call assemblies not to hear the words of men, but to declare the word of God. That's what, that's what we need to bring people under conviction, under the conviction of the word of the Lord, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
Not under the condemnation of the enemy, but, but the conviction that leads them to the Savior. The conviction that leads them into covenant faithfulness with God. To declare the word of the Lord. He calls this assembly. Number five in this assembly, verse three, that they reaffirm their covenant with God. Verse 3, the king stood by the pillar of the temple and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul, and to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And the people, the assembly, joined in the covenant. They pledged to walk in faithfulness to the Lord. They pledged to obey his word. He called the people back into faithfulness with God. And to a right walk with God. And they joined him in this. In verse six, we, uh, number six, what we see they did is they purified their worship. That, that this covenant that they made, this faithfulness with God, that it, it didn't just stop with word service, it resulted in action. We see this in 23, verse 4. The king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal and Asherah and the host of heaven. He, he brings out all of the idols. He, he, he says, we are not going to worship these idols. We're not going to worship these false gods anymore. He gets rid of them. He, he cleans house. That, that true repentance leads to action. It's not just lip service. It's living it out. They got rid of the idols. They tore them down. They went across the whole nation. This whole chapter is about these reforms. It's about them purifying their worship. You know, we've talked a lot recently in, in our services about idolatry and, and false gods and, and serving the Lord in truth and walking before him in righteousness and in holiness it's been a recurring theme that the Lord's been dealing with us on. There's it's also been the theme that we've been talking about of, of worshiping God in our homes, of, of worshiping God together as families, of family worship and family devotions. And we need to purify our worship before the Lord. We, we need to not let anything encroach into our pure worship before God. This is a, always a priority of Reformation is to, to reform the worship and to make it line up with the word of God. And, and then we see in verse 21 that they celebrated the Passover together to keep and to obey the word of God. Number seven, if you look at verse 24, he silenced false voices. It says, moreover, moreover Josiah put away the mediums, the necromancers, the household gods, the idols, and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book. And so here we see that, that he silences the, the, the mediums, the, the witches, the occults, the, all of the false voices. He puts them away so that the truth can be established. And for us, what this means is that we need to listen to, to true voices. We need to listen to, to people that point us to the word of God. We need to not be led astray by false voices, by, by competing narratives, by competing cultures, by lies. 
You know, entertainment is full of a false narrative, full of false voices, full of, of competing worldviews. You'll have a very hard time watching any TV show today, any movie that doesn't put front and center rampant sin and praise it as good and holy and righteous and just. You'll have a hard time finding anything today that is not taking what the Bible clearly declares as sin and heralding it as virtuous. And so for us, if the truth is going to be established in our lives, another way to put it is if the truth is going to take root so that it can grow and produce good fruit, these other voices, these other narratives, these other worldviews, they must be silenced so that we can hear the truth and obey the truth. Number eight, here's the real tragedy of all of this, is that in the end, Josiah failed to disciple his own family. He failed to disciple his own family, his own children, that after Josiah dies, his son comes to the throne. And his son, in verse 31, Jehoaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Verse 32 says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father had done. All those who had come before Josiah, he, he, he didn't continue in the path that Josiah had left, but instead he turned away from the Lord. He, Josiah failed to hand the faith down to his son, which tells us that the work of true reformation must always be a multi-generational project. True reformation is, is never only about what's happening in our day. That true reformation is always about what's going to be happening in the future. Is always about establishing things, planting seeds, watering seeds that will grow good fruit in the future. It's not just about today. It's about tomorrow. It's not just about my life and your life right now. It's about those who are coming after us. And that if the work of reformation doesn't involve the next generation, if we fail to pass on our faith to the next generation, the work of reformation was incomplete. It always has to be a multi-generational project. And so you can take these eight points, you can study Josiah, you can, you can by God's grace and the power of his word, I believe in any place that you have influence and authority, bring about reformation in your life personally, in your family, if you have any authority at work, wherever you are, you can bring about reformation. And the beautiful thing is, is that when a people will turn back to the Lord, that God's blessing begins to flow again that we position ourselves to, to walk in the blessings of God. And so I want to encourage you to, 
consider these things, to, to, to evaluate, is there an area, is there a place in my life that, that needs this touch, that needs to be reformed before the Lord? To start, of course, by going back to the book, to being convicted into personal repentance, to seeking the Lord, to gathering people around, to making a covenant, making a dedication, to worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth, to silencing the, the false narratives, the false voices, the, the lies of the enemy, and then handing it to the next generation, handing it down, pressing it down, down to the third and the fourth generation. Amen. I just want to say that uh, I believe um, that the future is bright, if you can believe that. I actually believe that. I really do. I, I, I believe that we're going to see more and more pastors become bold, people get involved, and people be unapologetically Christian in every sphere of life. I believe that. I believe that we're going to see more and more real, real, true, godly Christians living out their faith in the public square, in, in, even in government. I believe that. And that it, it's not just going to be a... Um, milk toast kind of generic watered down conservatism where we don't even know what we're trying to conserve but a true calling God's calling people back to repentance and faithfulness with God I believe that and I believe that God is even maybe even stirring even some of our own people in our own congregation to get involved at some level, serving somewhere in the public space, in the public sphere. I know that we've had some get involved with local school boards. I encourage that. But when you do, don't check your faith at the door. You're there to bring the kingdom of God, Amen. the rule and reign of God. And I believe that God can, can and is stirring a people to call the nation back to him. And so I don't, I don't believe that, um, you know, I'm, I'm not into the doom and gloom. I, I recognize that we are living in a dark time. I recognize that. But I also know that darkness has no power whatsoever. None. None. That if the light will simply shine, the darkness has to flee. We just have to shine. We just have to not be afraid. We just have to stand up and to speak out and to be unapologetically Christian in all of our er in every area of our life. Amen. The, the, the other doesn't work. Have you figured that out yet? The secularism, it just doesn't work. It all falls apart. It all disintegrates. It doesn't produce human flourishing. The, the results of secularism is death. It's a culture of death. Death in the womb, death for our kids, mutilating them so they can't even reproduce. It's death, 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 death. It's a culture of death. 
It's a war on the image bearers of God. Can you see it? But, but, but why would we be, as Christians, afraid or ashamed or, or think that, that somehow because, you know, someone went to school and they're really educated that, you know, they know what they're talking about? If, if anything, the last three years have shown us that you can be really smart and really dumb at the same time. That you can have a lot of education and have no wisdom whatsoever. So we need to not be intimidated by the secular system. We have the word of God, the sword of the spirit. And if we will wield this, I believe that we can see reformation and revival in our day and to sow the seeds of a lasting reformation into the future. Amen.